Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Five years on, Grenfell survivors say they are still waiting for justice. A toxic culture spanning decades at London's most famous architecture school. Campaigners warn Right to Buy's revamp could worsen the housing crisis. And a new inquiry into American sweet shops flooding Oxford Street. My name is Rachel Coppell, and I work at Open City. I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Pooja Agrawal. Pooja is the co-founder and CEO of Public Practice and is also the co-founder of Sound Advice. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Rachel. This week marked five years since the devastating fire that ripped through Grenfell Tower in West London, claiming the lives of 72 people. Tributes and memorials have been flooding social media, and the anniversary itself, the 14th of June, was covered by BBC News with a day of live broadcast interviews from the site. Meanwhile, moving thought pieces, testimonials, and retrospectives all featured across national and London news outlets. Five years on from the tragedy and with the inquiry in its fourth year, the picture around what and why such an awful tragedy could and did happen still remains at the forefront of discussion, with many blaming cost-cutting, profiteering, and deception for the installation of the flammable cladding materials which spread the fire. What we know is that in the early hours of the 14th of June, 2017, a fire broke out on the fourth story of Grenfell Tower. Within minutes, the flames engulfed the recently reclad and refurbished 23-story building, trapping residents, many of whom were advised to stay put, inside. Phase one of the public inquiry has laid bare successive failures on the parts of the local Kensington and Chelsea Council, cladding suppliers, and contractors involved in the deadly 2015 tower refurbishment which breached building regulations. Despite promising to enact all of the recommendations given by Phase 1, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has already announced the government will not implement legal obligations surrounding Personal Emergency Evacuation Plans, or PEEPs, which facilitate the evacuation of disabled residents in the event of a serious fire. Alongside the inquiry, the Metropolitan Police are investigating manslaughter, corporate manslaughter, misconduct in public office, and breaches of fire safety regulations. However, with the inquiry still ongoing and despite survivors demanding justice five years on, to date, no one has been charged. So Pooja, survivors and bereaved relatives of the Grenfell disaster have said that Britain should be ashamed of its response to the tragedy. 
As a leading architect and planner working in London, a city which has seen billions of pounds invested in new luxury housing while social housing budgets have been cut, do you agree our built environment sector should be ashamed of the way this has been handled and the fact that it happened in the first place? To start off, I just thought it's worth saying that this is a really emotive subject and really, really tragic. So I think it's really important to recognise that. And I hope anything I respond to does so in a sensitive manner. In terms of your question, should the built environment sector be ashamed? Absolutely. They should really be ashamed of the way this is handled. I think it reflects quite a broken system at a number of different levels at the level of national government, at the level of local government, at the level of the construction industry, and finally, the architecture profession. We start with national government. I suppose their role is fundamentally about setting the law. And from this, building regulations has come under quite a fair amount of scrutiny. Uh, Jason Beer, the QC on behalf of government, quoted that government had trusted that the builders, inspectors and suppliers were following the law and doing the right thing, i.e. that the industry was competent. I suppose there's a question then about who owns the responsibility, where does the liability lie? But fundamentally, I suppose, as technologies emerge and adapt, is our law able to stay on top of the changing sector? If we go down a level to local government, something that I'm obviously closest to in, in what I do, we know that the council department that was responsible for checking the safety of the Grenfell Tower was, in inverted commas, swamped with work, as austerity had cut and slashed the number of staff in their team. So the key surveyor who was overseeing this case was apparently handling 130 projects at once. There also comes to the level of actually um, management and maintenance of, of social housing and housing more generally, and how voices were not really listened to. And, and you see this across lots of different social housing buildings. Is, you know, a lot of them are coming to disrepair. And I think there's, there's a lot of kind of, again, systemic structures in terms of management and maintenance of buildings. And just to say, I think all of this I see as part of the built environment sector. If we then think about the construction industry, there seems to be a really lack of professionalism. When you dig into this deeper, there just seems to be quite a lot of people pointing the fingers at other people. So is it the product manufacturers? Is it the certifiers? Is it the architect who actually chose the product and specified it? I mean, I reflect on my own part three. I remember just thinking so much of part three is just learning how to learn not to get sued. It's pointing fingers at someone else. So I think Grenfell is a really tragic symbol of the broken structures and systems and actually how fractious our industry and, and all the players are. And actually how so much of this is driven by profit and fundamentally by capitalism. An opinion piece by London Mayor Sadiq Khan in The Observer this week criticized the government, building developers, and owners for falling short in their responses, pointing to the people up and down the country who still live in high-rise buildings clad in dangerously flammable materials, just like Grunfell. He said we could face another similar disaster again. Pooja, it's now five years since the disaster. Why are so many people still living in high-rise buildings with dangerous cladding yet to be remedied? And are people justified in their fear that we still cannot rule out a repeat disaster? I saw an article in the New Statesman recently that said that five years after the fire, 
less than 1% of buildings had had their dangerous cladding removed. So government had announced a billion pounds of spending that was to be spent in 2021 to support the remediation of unsafe, what's called non-ACM, which is the aluminium composite material, which Grenfell was clad with, for residential buildings that were more than 18 metres tall. So I think we have seen, well, the government has seen the registrations of around 3,500 buildings. I was quite intrigued to see most of those are actually private sector buildings and the exact figures for the social sector buildings is about 250. And I think it's only 30 buildings so far that have seen the cladding removed. And that's for buildings above 18 metres tall. That's not to say that this danger isn't present for buildings 11 to 18 metres tall, for example. So I guess there comes a question about funding. Who is funding this? Whose responsibility is? If no one's taken responsibility for it in the first place, I guess it's the same in terms of implementation, is how do you get all these different sectors working together to really make this happen on, on the ground? Awfully and tragically, I do think people are quite justified in their fear for another disaster in the country. The fire and subsequent public inquiry have put social housing under the spotlight, illuminating decades of neglect, long-term underfunding, cost-cutting, and mismanagement, all of which contributed to this disaster and to the poor living standards for social housing residents up and down the country. What should London's architects be doing to turn this trend around to ensure social housing is maintained to a high standard where disasters like this can't happen? I'm really, I don't know, I'm an architect and I really hate to see this, but I just do not think the profession has the standing or the agency to really make a difference to the quality of housing in a truly impactful way. Fundamentally, the tragedy around Grenfell just shows that if architects were competent, that would help, let alone being ambitious. So I think there's, along with being architects and delivering housing, there is other roles that as architects we need to take on board. I think advocating at a national stage for the the status of the profession and the worth of the profession and the influence it can have is an important one. I think it's a fundamental existential crisis for the profession to see where it positions itself. I mean, fundamentally, the reason I moved to the public sector, but also the reason that public practice exists and we set it up was because that, you know, in today's context, I really, truly believe that the impact, that the biggest impact architects can have is in that earlier stage of kind of policy driving, setting the funding and designing where the funding is going, thinking about those areas of most need and those communities that really, really need um, that kind of professional support. So I think having those expertise and skills in-house can have a really huge impact on their communities. Of course, that's one way of making change. I also think there's so many incredible movements that we're seeing on the ground from Extinction Rebellion to community-led housing. And, you know, I feel like there should be an activist in all of us. I think that's really why people become architects in the first place. So I think being sensitive and understanding the importance of different lived experiences to shaping their neighbourhoods is really important. But there's also something here about recognising the technical and spatial skills that we have as architects and thinking about how we might influence our local neighbourhoods, the communities we live in, and how we can therefore advocate for better quality of living for all people. 
University College London has said it will take immediate action after a, quote, shocking report into its world-famous Bartlett School of Architecture uncovered bullying, sexual misconduct, racism, and a toxic culture spanning decades. This is a story that has provoked an outpouring of condemnation on social media by past students and high-profile London architects associated with the faculty which has long been regarded as one of architecture's best and most prestigious schools. The 120-page report, which coincides with a legal challenge by students over a decades-long culture of bullying and discrimination at the Bartlett, has also been extensively covered by the AJ with in-depth articles, follow-ups, and opinion pieces. The investigation found, quote, deeply concerning allegations and a toxic culture stretching back decades. This culture and the school's structural setup, together with a small group of staff, were the central cause of many of the issues, it said, adding that power, protectionism, and cliques, often referred to as a boys' club, allowed a lack of accountability to become woven into the fabric of the Bartlett. Hours before the damning report was published last Thursday, the outgoing Bartlett director, Bob Shields, stepped down early as head of the architecture school. UCL also said it had suspended some school staff from student-facing and administrative duties with immediate effect. Separately, the Architects Registration Board has requested an urgent meeting with the Bartlett, raising concerns the troubled architecture school may have breached its rules on diversity and equality. In a statement, the board said the report had found, quote, disturbing examples of discrimination, bullying, and a culture of favoritism and fear, adding that it wanted assurances from the university that the necessary changes to culture will be made and to discuss any potential breaches of its accreditation rules. Pujo, what do you make of this report? Do you accept the conclusion that sexism, misogyny, and an old boys club atmosphere exist in this prestigious institution? And if so, what do you think might have been causing it? Where do I begin with this one? <laughs> uh, I was a student at the Bartlett in about a decade ago and I did my part two there, so I did my master's. When I saw the report on social media, I said last week, I literally had this like knot in my stomach. I decided to do a tweet and I just sort of went along the lines of 10 years on, the toxicity of the school impacts loved ones in me. I witnessed and experienced sexism, racism, anti-Semitism and bullying. I encourage others to formally share their experiences. Let that 300 become 3,000 voices. So I actually was really lucky enough to be supported by my own tutors, though I did remember, I remember so clearly having this horrific public humiliation at a crit with one of, you know, the most senior staff of the Bartlett. And it was really had really really strong racist undertones and I will be making a formal statement through the you know the systems and the process that uh, that the Bartlett and UCL has set up and fundamentally that was the point of my tweet was to encourage people to share their experiences and the, mo the more you can give examples and practical experiences it helps in terms of the evidence and of course sometimes you cannot capture the multiple microaggressions or the micro experiences you might have had but I definitely witnessed people really close to me um, who had on a daily basis experienced bullying I'm so happy that it's being challenged and um, yeah I think it's about fucking time if I'm allowed to swear on this you are uh, so 
UCL's Bartlett School of Architecture has been long seen as one of the most influential architectural schools in the world. What does it mean for London and its built environment sector and culture that such a prestigious school is at the center of a scandal like this? I mean, I think fundamentally that's exactly why the Bartlett has been able to get away with it is because of its prestige. I think because they fundamentally always been recognized as being so successful they it had it almost justified their approach of creating that space of fear and favoritism and competition between students to say well clearly it's working look at how successful we are as a school so I am an optimist I also think about doing things to solve problems and and hopefully that reflects in my career so I do hope that there is significant evidence here for the institution to take proper action and it's really positive to see some shifts in leadership one of the things that was really interesting to witness and probably what actually upset me most when I was the Bartlett was how that culture of bullying and com- competition which was or if you say that's like a vertical hierarchy it actually worked in a horizontal way where people's worst behaviors were encouraged with peers and that's what a culture is. That's what a toxic culture is when everyone behaves badly because that's empowered. So I, I, that's what I hope to see shifting in the coming years and so much respect and support for the students who are there now and have been really leading the change because I'm not sure we had the stomach to do that a decade ago. Do you think the wider architectural industry and educational sector were aware of such concerns about the Bartlett before the report being published and the allegations being brought to light? Are allegations like these limited to the Bartlett or is the problem more endemic across architectural education in general? I do think there is a a toxic and endemic culture in architecture and across architecture schools, but I really think we need to be careful and not use that to justify the problem that is so apparent at the Bartlett. I think a fundamental issue with the Bartlett that the culture was really, really self-referential and people who had experienced bullying in the past came back to teach and repeated similar behaviours. And these tutors constantly employed these students into their own practices too. So you start to see this kind of culture in practice, especially in practices that were affiliated with the Bartlett. A really clever and trusted colleague I was talking to about this when the report came up, who didn't study in a London school, was saying how is is it some is there something here about particularly the cultures in in London schools? I mean, this might not be everyone's experience, but it has made me think. You know, why is it that you know thinking about the London nature of this podcast? What is it about this city and the education that might be facilitating or supporting this type of culture? And I, I don't have the answer to that, but it's definitely something I've been thinking about. In recent years, a raft of influential London architecture practices have given money to support Bartlett Promise, a long-term project to attract students from a broader range of backgrounds to tackle the lack of diversity in the built environment. Do worthy initiatives like this now risk being undermined as a result of the scandal and its fallout? I think this is a really, really good question. And in all honesty, I'm not sure. There's going to have to be a lot of work to to build a culture of trust and care. I, I actually care less about those architectural promises that had supported the Bartlett promise. And I'm actually thinking so much more about those people from a broad range of backgrounds who no doubt would have had a horrific time. So 
you know, if, if you want to think about how do you measure success, you know, that's always a question institutions ask themselves. In five years' time, if those people, those students can turn around and say, we've had a nurturing education experience, I think that's when I'll be confident that we've seen change being made. The government is storming ahead with plans to shake up and reinvigorate its contentious right-to-buy scheme in a move which critics say will worsen Britain's lack of affordable housing. We covered right-to-buy on our last London with Will Jennings, but since then, more details have emerged in a speech made by the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, prompting fresh coverage by The Independent, Guardian, and the blog Unheard, which ran a comment piece by acclaimed urbanist Anna Minton. The expansion of the scheme to include both housing association residents and people claiming unemployment benefits will, quote, turn benefits into bricks, according to the prime minister. If rolled out, the shakeup will allow 1.5 million people to put their housing benefits towards a mortgage and give 2.5 million housing association tenants the chance to buy their home, something that was not possible when Right to Buy first launched to sell tenants Britain's council housing stock. The government has also announced plans to review its mortgage finance for first-time buyers, aiming, it says, to boost the accessibility of low-cost, low-deposit finance. The results of this investigation are expected in the autumn. Alicia Walker, head of policy research and campaigns at the youth homelessness charity Centerpoint, said, quote, If the government is truly serious about turning benefits into bricks, then we need to see a serious level of investment into genuinely affordable social rented housing. She went on to say, quote, as well as this extending the right to buy to housing associations risks further eroding the stock of social housing, which many young people desperately need. Promises of like-for-like -like replacements have been made before, but not been followed through. This all comes amid fears another recession could be on the way. On Monday, the pound fell against the dollar and tech stocks and the UK stock markets took a hit after the Office for National Statistics reported a surprise contraction of economic output in April amid the spiraling cost of living crisis. So Pooja, this latest right to buy initiative could see a few low income people lucky enough to have a council or housing association tenancy offered a route to home ownership but we know many people in the most dire housing need are either homeless or private renters in substandard overpriced accommodation. Why has housing policy for decades so consistently prioritized boosting home ownership and dodged much needed investment in sustainable, high quality housing, something that many campaigners argue would impact far more people? If I may, I might start with the right to buy initiative in itself. So fundamentally, the I think the justification that comes from government around this is that we're not going to lose any housing stock because for every house that is sold, we will build another home. And I think that's fundamentally the, the problem with this initiative. The National Housing Federation, which are which is the institution fundamentally representing housing associations, made it clear that a lot of the recent pilots that demonstrated tried the right to buy showed how difficult it is to fundamentally replace a single social home with a newly built social home. Basically, there's just not enough money from the sales to actually build a new social home. So at the moment, their research shows that 4.2 million people are in need for social housing today. And therefore, with every home, social home that's being sold, this waiting list is only going to get longer and longer and longer. 
So building on our conversation earlier about Grenfell, housing associations and even local authorities are really, really facing a number of challenges around their existing housing stock, ensuring that they're safe and also thinking about net zero, actually how they decarbonize these homes and how they retrofit them. And, you know, where is this funding going to come from? So I think the whole right to buy initiative is actually quite a distraction given the wider political position we're seeing our leaders in at the moment. So coming back to your question around home ownership, it is just so much easier to push the agenda for right to buy because it's easier in a way to get someone to buy their home than it is to actually deliver a new home. So I think in in a deeply cynical way, uh, in, in terms of politics, building on the aspiration of home ownership and doing that through buying existing stock is a much easier win than, as we know, the very complicated sector and process of delivering homes. In its coverage, The Guardian spoke to Ian Fraser, a housing officer from Wales, who said, quote, Fixing the housing crisis requires a determination to address a rigged market and to ensure that enough housing is genuinely affordable. It will not be solved by reducing the already limited supply of good quality social housing. Does Ian have a point here? And what would action to address a rigged housing market look like in a city like London? Look, we can talk about the the housing crisis for probably an hour in itself. We can talk about it from so many different angles. But I will talk about planning because that's what I know about best. So I, I really think that if you had a strong planning system in place, I think... If, you, if you're looking at it from the private sector point of view, it gives them assurance to sort of know, OK, this is what we're working within. But actually, from, from my point of view, the most important thing in having a very strong planning system is that it puts local authorities in the position of power. It puts them in the position of strong negotiation and gives them the agency to make sure that they are arguing and making sure that they have the best quality of housing for their communities. We also, I think, in this period where we, in the last few years, are seeing a number of local authorities actually delivering their own housing. And a recent report by the RTPI on local authority house building saw that actually 80% of authorities now self-report that they're directly engaged in the provision of housing, which is a notable increase from 69%, which was um pre kind of COVID. And I think that's that's quite an interesting shift that COVID's actually making local authorities take matters in their own hands. A lot of these authorities also have different types of housing companies and that has increased as well from 58% in 2017 to 78% in 2019 to 83% in 2021, which I think is really interesting. Of course, it comes with complexity, it comes with problems, not all of them work. But I do think it's a really important opportunity moving forward. So what do we need, though, for this to happen? I think fundamentally, this report also said that the councils that actually delivered the most housing had the best, most established focus teams to achieve this. So that is what we need, really, is the right confidence and the right capability of local authorities in-house to be delivering housing at a scale that was required. I do think there is an elephant in the room here. We have a recession looming. And it's quite unclear in some ways 
what the impact this is going to have. If you think about the impact recession had just over a decade ago, we're now working within the realms post-COVID and post-Brexit as well. So there's going to be a lot more disruption, of course, in the private sector, but we're going to see an increased burden and uh, more needs from local people, from their local government as well. And then there's a question fundamentally about our sector. What, you know, has the sector, has the architecture profession learned anything from, from the recession a decade ago? How can they make sure that their own employees are are able to sort of work through this next period and still able to really deliver really good quality housing despite the constraints we're going to see over the next few years. Oxford Street, London fame for being London's top retail spot, has undergone a bit of a culinary makeover in recent years. Visitors to the iconic 1.2-mile-long retail stretch will have undoubtedly observed a tide of nearly identical American-style sweet shops flooding down the strip, occupying some of the street's most iconic shop fronts, including the original HMV store. This hasn't gone unnoticed by local authority Westminster Council, which has launched an investigation into a total of 30 shops over alleged tax fraud. The investigation has been reported on by the BBC, Evening Standard, and Independent this week. But the wider phenomenon of London's many American candy shops has also sparked an avalanche of interest, with videos on TikTok discussing the phenomenon attracting millions of views. According to Westminster City Council, around £7.9 million in business rates have been dodged by these enterprises. The council has also seized nearly half a million pounds of counterfeit and illegal goods over the past six months, including e-cigarettes, which do not meet UK safety standards. The council also claims the shops do not appear to be, quote, commercially viable, and what few visitors these shops attract will find sweets sold at double or even more the price of supermarkets. According to BBC Radio 4, a box of After Eights costs £7.99 in one of these stores, compared to the normal price of £3. Councillor Adam Hugg, leader of Westminster Council, said, quote, The problem is that owners of buildings are turning a blind eye to those who sublet them as it means they are not liable for business rates. That's why we have a rash of U.S. candy stores in prestige locations. I also just want to add for context, as an American, that we all feel that British candy is superior to American candy, and it is very strange to just the whole thing from top to bottom just screamed scam, I think, to most Americans who saw this from day one. None of this is surprising. Many commentators have picked up on the language surrounding this story. Authorities have described these shops as an eyesore and a threat to the status of the nation's premier shopping street. And some online pundits are arguing that the actual offenses seem incidental. Do they have a point? And perhaps what we are really witnessing is a bit of moral panic around a sort of shopping street that doesn't fit our preconceived ideas about the role of the high street. I think the the role of the high street is quite a well-rehearsed conversation, and I know it's something that you've talked about. But I think what I find interesting with the conversation of high streets is you can't just think of high streets as a generic typology and therefore every single high street has the same issues or therefore the same approach to solving the crisis. So if you think about Westminster and Oxford Street, I think the role that 
high street has is a very, very different role than other high streets play in different types of neighbourhoods. So I know from the work that our associates do, we've had Blanca and Grace in Richmond and Wandsworth, who are looking specifically at the nighttime economy from a point of view around equity and inclusion and thinking about how women, for example, can feel safe in public spaces. While somewhere in Barnet, we've had a number of associates, including Azul, Zena, Anne and many others who've been looking at all the different high streets in their, in their local authority and looking at how each of them have very particular cultural identities and how you can engage and work with the communities in a very particular way to that position. So I think it's a really interesting conversation about high streets. And, and my fundamental point is we can't have a generic response to all high streets. We need to think about them from a very place-based perspective. Finally, we are going to touch on two cultural exhibitions that you can check out in London this week. First, we've got the unveiling of the 2022 Serpentine Pavilion, designed by Theaster Gates. Theaster is a Chicago artist and urban activist, and he says that, quote, the guiding principle of the building was that of a vessel. Who is Theaster Gates, and are you familiar with his previous work? Absolutely. I think he's a really, really inspiring figure, and I've come across his work in different ways, more reading and learning about him, to be honest. He's, he, he almost self-identifies as like a sculptor, an artist. Uh, I think he studied urban design and religion, which almost you can see in this pavilion. So I think he's a really interesting character. He has done a lot of uh, regeneration and regeneration and you can always question gentrification but I think he's done it in a really interesting way in his neighborhood where he's from in Chicago in South Chicago if I have that right in fact I think one of the things he did buy up was a candy store so I feel like that all comes back quite quite nicely so I think he, he is really inspiring fundamentally the Serpentine Pavilion itself I think there's, there's just so many asks for what it needs to be and at the end of the day it's it's a place for people who are architects and non-architects, to go and hang out. So I haven't visited it yet, but I'm really looking forward to going and seeing it. But I think there's almost too much of critique around what, you know, you know, is this a good pavilion? Is it not a good pavilion? Well, it's trying to be so many different things. And I think it's the challenge of the brief more so than what you what it looks like in an image. So for me, it's all about that experience. Next up, we have Ecologic Studios Otrovin Air Lab. It's a new exhibition opening at the Building Center this week, running through July 15th. It's a part of the London Festival of Architecture. The exhibition is by the Ecologic Studio and Otrovin Actions to Breathe Cleaner Initiative, featuring experimentation with innovative nature-based solutions to mitigate the impact of urban air pollution on children's breathing health. So Pooja, this seems like a pretty cool exhibition. What do you make of the crossover between design, architecture, and engineering? I think everything we've been talking today is about those crossovers and non-siloed working, whether it's within local government or whether it's within the sector itself. So I'm really interested around this, this idea of technology as well as being part of this and experimenting on new nature-based solutions. So I hadn't heard about this, but I'm really looking forward to checking it out. So thanks for flagging it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can we follow you, find you, learn more about your work uh, on the internet and beyond? 
Sure. So you can find me on Twitter, everyone's favorite social media platform. Probably not, but it's just at Agarwal Pooch. Uh, you can follow Public Practice on, you can you know sign up to our newsletter. You can find us on LinkedIn and social media. It's not that hard to find us. And you can also follow Sound Advice on Instagram, where we talk more around racial and spatial equity. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.